0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at five verses today. 1 Verse Peter 1, and that's 20 through 25. And we're going to be closing out chapter 1 this week and starting chapter 2 the next week. We're continuing our series called God of All Grace. And today, the title of today's message is Find, Tell, Bring. Find, Tell, Bring. Uh, I want to just take a few minutes. I'm really glad, actually, that uh, Daniel kind of began our service today uh, with just some encouragement and actually some some admonishment and exhortation <clears throat> about what is going on in our culture. And I just want to take a few minutes this morning to uh, to address it. I think these are just some thoughts. These are not necessarily God's thoughts. I mean, I do feel like the Lord has just given me some insight, but that's all it is. Folks, I think that what we're seeing in our culture right now with all these fires and and the stuff going on in the cities, uh, I think what, what you see is always a result of what has been sown. So what you see today is always the result of what has been sown in the past. And this is the fruit of a culture that has drank darkness deeply to its dregs. And unfortunately, recent events have become um, typical challenges. I mean, what we've experienced over the last couple of months or so, not including the pandemic, has just been the sorts of things that we see played out in the news cycle all the time. I mean, we, we experience this every year. And then you take those normal pressures and those divisions within our culture, and then you overlay on top of that a frightening virus that has killed 115,000 people in three months that, and then taken 30 million jobs and 40% of those jobs, they tell us, will never come back. I mean, so people are living with a great deal of fear. People are living in, in, a, in a tremendous tension. And then on top of that, you coop them up in their houses where <laughs> they're just going mad with isolation. And we are just sitting on a powder keg in our culture. We are. And what does all the pressure reveal? What does it reveal? Well, I think one thing that it clearly reveals is just how deeply fractured our culture is. Uh, Just how deep the divides are between factions in our culture. It also reveals uh, that when a culture has drank this deep and imbibed darkness for this long, that nothing, nothing can hold them together. Nothing can not even the Constitution of the United States, now a 200-year-old document in the National Archives. It has also revealed that there are things that are more important than a, than a vaccine. I'm going to say that again. It's, this has also revealed that there are just things in our lives and in our culture and in our society that are more important than finding a therapy or a vaccine for this disease. Things like common decency, like justice and a measured response like mercy, and compassion, and forgiveness, and protesting without resorting to lawlessness. And these values are in short supply in our culture today, and I want to tell you why. Because our culture doesn't supply them. Because the institutions and the industries of our culture, as good or bad as they may be, do not supply these values. These values can only be found in the community, of the cross. The community founded on this sure word. These values can only be found in the community that is saved by the cross and shaped by the cross, and that's it. And, and so you and I have a responsibility today. We have a calling, and we have an urgency. And, and I think what Peter is going to share with us in these five verses today is really going to just light a fire under us to get moving and to be ambassadors to our culture. We offer the world what it cannot get anywhere else. The world cannot, there is no industry, there is no institution in our nation or in our country or in this world that can offer what we have to offer. You can't find it in political activism, you can't find it in the entertainment industry, you can't find it in in the educational system, in the university system, you sure can't find it there. You can find it right here in the house of God, in the community of faith, we are the ones that God has given the one thing, the one thing is present here that binds the world together. It's the only thing. So we've heard a lot of superficial uh, diagnoses for what is going on in our culture and Peter is going to help us diagnose it differently. Let's turn to the text now, First Peter 1, 20-25, and here's what he says. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, Love one another constantly because you have uh, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And all flesh is like grass and all its glory glory, like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. First, First thing that I think Peter talks about here is God's patient plan. God's patient plan. Christ is God's eternal Son, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. And creation is the theater of his glory. And it's the theater of his glory as the story of mankind unfolds. We see that we are crowned with the glory of Godlikeness. Think about that. In the garden, we have been crowned with the glory. We of all creatures. Crowned with the glory of Godlikeness. And then we experience the fall from that grace and the descent into this maddening idolatry that characterizes the world today. And leaving the human being in bondage to sin, enslaved to his appetites and prideful pursuits, in need of rescue, resurrection, and new purpose, here's what God does God rescues him. And God decides to do something about that situation. And God was patient, He waited. Until the scripture says Christ came in the fullness of time. What's the fullness of time? That means at just the right time. While we were ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners and rebels and pushing against God's reign and his rule and his truth, Christ comes and he dies for the ungodly. Population statistics tell us, population analysts tell us, that of all the people who have ever lived on the planet Earth, 98% or better have lived after the time of Christ, after the cross. God's timing is never off. Mercy is never late. And what God does is send his son at the fulcrum of time, at the beginning, and then the gospel is pushed. It is carried by the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit down the corridors of time. And he didn't come too early, and he didn't come too late. He came in, what he says, number two, these last times, these last days. He says that Jesus was revealed in these last times. That literally means in the end times, last days. Peter tells us in his first sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2. This is, this is a great. These are great bookends, right? Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church because the Holy Spirit is poured out in power. And then Peter gets out there in the uh, just sort of the street And there is a crowd forming to try to understand what these weird Jews are doing, doing, speaking in tongues. And they are hearing them in all of their native languages. And Peter gets up and preaches this sermon, and here's what he says. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, and here's what he says. "And And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all people. That's what God says. I will pour out my spirit when? In the last days. Folks, you and I have been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost in A.D. 34. We've been living in the last days. It's 2,000 years later. I think you you and I could probably agree on this. We are all living on borrowed time. Every single day we get up is another borrowed day. We we have been living in the end times for two days thousand years. And the sobering thought for Peter is that Christ was revealed in these last times. Why? To bring us to Christ because of the urgency of what is about to happen. And so uh, I want to give you a couple of passages. If you don't remember any other passages about the end times I want you to remember these two. Just put these in your back pocket. Remember where they are. The first one is Matthew 24 It's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olivet and uh, he's answering two questions. The disciples ask him two questions. When will the destruction of, of the temple be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age, at the end of the world? So these are big questions they're asking and Jesus says this starting in verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other." That's some heavy-duty stuff. Let me give you just three keys to interpreting that. The first one is this, is that the cosmic signs are literary, they're not literal. Because stars are not going to fall out of, this, out of space and fall to the earth. right? This is the kind of language that you see in the Old Testament prophets when they are describing to Babylon, like in Isaiah 14 and other passages, where they are telling the foreign nation, uh, this is how God is going to depose you. This is how the sovereign king the sovereign lord of the universe is going you're going to pass away this way. The the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The the stars will fall from the sky. The earth the foundations of the earth will be shaken. The sun will turn dark and the moon blood red. This is this is what theologians call cosmic upheaval language. The language of cosmic upheaval means very simply this. The prophet is trying to say What language could I possibly use to tell you what it's like to be on the wrong side of judgment? I mean, what language could I use? How could I describe to you what it is like for you to be on the wrong side of the judgment of God? A recipient of the wrath of God. Now, for sure, when Jesus returns, what he's described here is, it, it is going to be indescribable. I mean, he is going to come back and the whole world will know that he has come back. In fact, he says right here, the nations will look upon him and mourn. Why will they cry out in mourning? Because judgment has come. And so you need to understand that the way that Jesus is using this cosmic sign language is as an Old Testament prophet prophesying to the nations, the end has come, judgment is near. And he says the sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man appearing in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man who comes in great power and great glory. What is he talking about here? Write this down. Daniel chapter 7. It's the book of Daniel chapter 7. And that is a prophecy or that is a vision that Daniel sees of uh, this one who is a Son of Man who ascends as Lord and God. It's a weird picture. I mean, it's one is the Son of Man who ascends to the Ancient of Days. And when he comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days, Ancient of Days is is a code for God the Father. And when the Son ascends in a cloud of glory to God the Father or the Ancient of Days, God the Father bestows upon him all power and all glory and the worship of the nations. Just a powerful picture, and Jesus is claiming to be that Son of Man right here in this text. So you have to understand that Jesus' ascension after his resurrection into heaven, as Daniel uh, told us earlier, both through song and in his reading, that is Christ coming to the right hand of the power of the universe, man, being enthroned on high. And then he's going to return. He's going to return in that same power and that same glory that he has received from the Father. And he is going to subdue the nations. And then the angels are harvesting the earth. So here we have this picture of the angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth. The four winds of the earth. Which presupposes that they have made it out to the four corners of the earth. So believers have spread across the face of the earth in every corner and every crevice, every alcove, every neighborhood in the world. And now God is gathering them to the Messiah when he comes. Now, another passage that's very much in parallel to that is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I want to read that one to you as well. Because this is Paul's retelling of the same thing. But Paul tells it in a letter. This is how he says it. He says to the Thessalonians, he says... "Um, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Don't you feel that our culture today just is hopeless? Don't you feel the grief and the mourning in our culture today? And, and Paul says, I, I listen, you and I grieve too. What we've seen in the news in this last cycle is very Grieving. And you and I mourn, along with our brothers and sisters, our fellow earthlings, (laughs) right? Like, we mourn along with them, but we do not mourn, we don't grieve without hope. They do. And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, I want you to be informed. I don't want you to be ignorant, I want you to be knowledgeable, You and I grieve in such a way. We mourn along with them, but we do so because we have a greater hope. What's the hope? Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's our hope. Bam. Resurrection. Because everything is based on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep is just a metaphor for dying. And how do we know these people aren't actually asleep? Because they're alive enough to come back with Jesus. Here's what he says. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. So this is a direct revelation that God gives Paul and his entourage or the disciples. We say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we don't get to go first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice. I have no idea what that's like, but I can tell you that that voice is literally going to wake the dead. And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. So he comes back with the saints that have died in the Lord. And the saints who have died in the Lord are resurrected from their graves, reconstituted in a brand new resurrected body. And so Christ will return with the deceased saints and they will rise first. And then he says this, verse 17, then we, we who are still alive, anybody who's alive at that time, who are left, we will be caught up. This word means to be snatched. It means to be grabbed or seized away. He says, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now this word for meet only appears two other places in the New Testament, Matthew 25 and Acts 28. And in both of those places, Matthew 25 is a parable about the 10 virgins. Okay, this is first century Middle Eastern culture, okay? The ten virgins are about to marry a guy. Okay, that's weird for us, but it wasn't weird for them. And so five of the virgins were unprepared. They didn't bring oil for their lamps so they could stay vigilant and stay awake for the coming of the bridegroom. So they have to go back to the town to get oil for their lamps. Now the five who were prepared, that's the point of the whole story, be prepared for his coming. Right, so they're ready and it is announced the bridegroom is here. Where is he? He's actually outside of town. He's actually outside of town, and it says, and the five virgins, the the brides, went out to meet him. And then what did did they do? They returned with him. So they met him outside of town when he arrived to greet him and immediately returned with him. In Acts chapter 28, the word meet is also used in the same sense. Paul is coming uh, to the city. And before Paul gets to the city, all the believers and the elders from Rome come out to meet him. When they meet him on the outside of the city, they immediately return with him to the city. And this is precisely exactly the word that he uses here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Is that what he means to say? I don't know, but I think that's very suggestive. We are going to meet the Lord in the air when he comes. And I think, personally, I think we're going to immediately return to the world With him, and the whole world will see him, every eye. The whole world will hear him, and some will cry out in mourning because their judgment has come. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is not a discouraging message. I can't tell you how many times I've had to just sort of talk someone off the ledge when they're talking about the end times and worried that the world is going to end, and I say, hey, this is an encouraging message. Are you a believer? Because if you're a believer, this is encouragement. You and I take courage from this. We're infused with the courage of God from this. So this is supposed to be an encouraging message, not not one that stresses you out. It's something we look forward to. So the ambiguity, let me say this about the sequence of the Lord's coming in the last days. I want to say this. It's very important to understand. It's, I think, this is my opinion, but I think it's intentionally ambiguous. Why? Why would that be? It's because the ambiguity of it keeps the discussion of it alive. The ambiguity of the sequence of events as they play out in Scripture keeps the conversation alive. And God wants to keep the conversation alive. God wants you and I to diligently search like the prophets did in the Old Testament and they didn't fully understand. He said that a few verses back. The prophets searched and they inquired and they made a study and they tried to... Figure it out. And you and I are trying to do the same thing with the second coming. And that ambiguity helps us keep the conversation alive. It keeps the fire hot for Christ's coming. You may disagree with my interpretation of those passages, but I can tell you this if we sit down and we have fellowship over the cross, we're free to disagree. And not only are we free to disagree, we're free to encourage one one another and sharpen each other and challenge one another and say, hey, have you thought about this? So he wants to say, this message has been revealed in the last days. And we have been in the last days for 2,000 years. Every day you wake up, every day I wake up, we are living on borrowed time. And since we have been sanctified, he says, we have been purified. And since we have been sanctified by our obedience to the truth of the gospel, because we have been born again into a living hope, not with perishable seed, right? But through the imperishable message of the gospel the word of god he says number three practice brotherly love so be a brother be a lover not a hater right so there i'm going to tell you two things that uh, that really are obstacle are are barriers to us practicing brotherly love i'll tell you what they are first one is the danger of group think and sameness I think you and I can't practice real true brotherly love unless we celebrate the distinctiveness that God has built into the brotherhood. When we demand that others think like us in non-essential matters. When we demand that they conform to our image and our likeness. Have you ever met someone like that who is just trying to disciple everyone and make them a clone of their image and their likeness? No, you're not called to be and think exactly like me. You're called to be formed into the image of Christ alone. Diversity is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Sameness and group thing is is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Only on the essentials do you and I have complete and total unity. I want to say this. The gospel doesn't remove our distinctiveness. The gospel doesn't remove our distinctiveness. It simply obliterates those distinctions as walls of hostility between us. It obliterates, it takes those distinctions, we celebrate them, but, but it removes those distinctions as barriers to our fellowship. Right, practicing brotherly love means this: that we celebrate the enormous diversity that God has built into the human experience, and contrary to the need, my need to conform everybody to the way I think, to conform everybody to the way I see the world, and all these non-essential ways, or to be exactly the same as me. God actually, the gospel of Jesus actually flourishes in places where there is great, great diversity diversity of conditions. What about Galatians 3.28? Doesn't it say there is therefore no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female in Christ, since you are all one in Christ Jesus? I want to show you the context of that. Here it is, verses 27 through 29. I want to show you the context. He says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. He says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all or one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his children, heirs according to the promise. What is he talking about here? He's saying, you Gentiles do not have to convert to becoming Jewish. The works of the law, the works of Torah, being circumcised. Uh, Eating a kosher diet, he mentions that in the book of Galatians. He mentions the times and seasons and special new moon festivals. He mentions the Sabbath. Those are the three marks of Judaism, and he's trying to tell the Galatians, you don't need to convert to becoming a Jewish person to be in the family of God. You, as a non-Jew, non-practicing Jew, a Gentile believer in Christ, you are part of the family of God by faith. That's what he's trying to tell them, and that's what this verse is about. This verse is about telling us that there is great distinction and great diversity within the body of Christ. Diversity is God's plan. It is his thing, man. He is the one that has given us a great, a great panoply and diversity that we see within the human race, but it is also God's plan to not have those distinctions become barriers or walls of hostility between us. God has break, broken those walls of hostility down remember the first time I went on a missions trip, it was to a place called Belize, Central America. And Belize was a really interesting place. I'd never been outside of America before. And uh, <clears throat> so when I got there, it was really fun uh, to meet all the kids at the camp. We were doing kind of a, a gospel camp and, and stuff uh, there. And really sort of drove out to the middle of the jungle. And when we got there, the people that greeted us, the kids at the camp, were beautiful. And they were amazing, and they were so different than us. And they talked, they spoke English, and they spoke Creole, and they taught us some Creole words, and we had so much fun. And you know what I discovered probably within the first day that I was there is that not everybody has to look like some kid from Richmond, Virginia to be a Christian. And I discovered that these are the people of God out in the middle of a jungle. I mean, this is God's way, man. This is, this is how God does it. We were not there to export our way of life. We were there to export the gospel. We were there to bring them into a saving relationship and to disciple them in the Lord. And I think we also have the danger of division, the danger of groupthink and just sameness, cultic sameness. And then we have the danger of division. When the celebration of diversity turns into divisiveness and superficial tribalism and 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 now now we have a problem. The one thing that binds us all together is the cross. The one thing that binds us all together in our glorious diversity is the cross, the saving work of Jesus on the cross, right? And the only offense to the gospel that we should take is the cross. The only offense to the gospel I should raise to you is the cross. Because if you become offended by me or if I put up some arbitrary wall of hostility between you and Jesus because you have to become like me now. No, the only thing that binds us together in all of our glorious diversity is the cross of Jesus. We all stand there embracing the cross, wherever we come from, whatever our, our culture is, whatever our language, whatever ethnicity, and the only offense to the gospel should be the cross. Brotherly love celebrates the great diversity of God himself has built into the human experience. And there's nothing unspiritual or unChristian about us gathering around the essentials while sharing differences of opinions uh, over non-essentials. So brotherly love does not use diversity as a cudgel to bludgeon people over the head to turn them into us or to create unholy factions. The Christian Church of Jesus the Messiah is the one place on earth where every person from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every ethnicity ought to be able to join us at the foot of the cross and say, we are people of the cross. We have been saved by the cross. We are being shaped by the cross. Number four, we should live with urgency. Brotherly love is something that is supposed to define uh, the church of Jesus. And when the world is missing it and they don't have it, they should be able to see it in us. They should be able to see it exemplified in the family of God. But the last thing he says here is we need to have a sense of urgency. Why is that? Because he finishes the text off by saying this. Um, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. What is he talking about there? I don't know about you, but, but if you'd noticed, if you moved here from somewhere else, and I don't mean like from Wisconsin, I mean like if you moved here from Southern California or Texas or anywhere else in the Southeast, I, I moved up in this area from Richmond, Virginia. Now, I moved from San Diego to, to Richmond, Virginia, and I thought, I thought Richmond was cold in the winter. And then I moved out here. And then, like, I started pastoring out in this region. And you know what you discover is that during the summer, we call it the summer rapture. Because people are just gone. Like, people just go. Here's why. Because as soon as the trees start blooming, like, as soon as it gets warm enough to do anything, we're out of here. I mean, man, we're vacationing. Why? Because we know the time is short. The days are are short. We know what the future holds because in October it's going to become cold again, it's going to be winter again, it's going to be winter from October to April. So we know that and and that is why during this short window of time we we mow and we curate and we manicure our lawns and we vacation with such urgency. (laughs) I've never seen people vacation with such a sense of urgency. Why? Because we know we're in a limited season. And that's exactly the way Peter wants us to view the season that we're in right now. He wants us to see the world just like that. Do you know that all flesh just fades like the grass? Your grass, I finally got my grass green. It's going to start turning brown the end of October. So I have to mow like a madman. You know, like I have to take advantage of it. And we have to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. Why? Because this is the last days, and it has been for 2,000 years. It's been the last days for 2,000 years. And every single day we wake up, we are waking up on borrowed time. And this world as it is right now, as we know it, is passing away. It's passing away. I want to say this. The impermanence of the times demands urgency of effort. The impermanency of the times demands an urgency of effort. The life is passing. People are dying. People are dying and they're going to go to hell. They're going to spend eternity apart from God. They're going to spend eternity without Jesus. And if you are sitting there and you're listening to me and you haven't made a commitment to the Lord Jesus and experienced that glorious grace that we sang about, I want to invite you to it. There's no other thing that should be more urgent to you in your life because life is passing and people are dying. And and ultimately, we too will succumb to that fate. Our human lives are cursed with impermanence right now. You see, we have two problems. We have two problems. The first problem is, is that we cannot possibly have brotherly unity apart from Christ and his cross. We can't have it. There's nothing else that could possibly really deeply unify us as a people. And the second problem is, is that the world is passing away. And even if the end time, even if Jesus doesn't return uh, within your lifetime, after your lifetime, he's going to return. I mean, you're going to die. You're going to meet him in some capacity. So when I look in our culture and I see a world that used to be green with truth, a verdant landscape of truth and God's wisdom, plentiful and abundant. And now I think I see a world that is fading, like passing away. And the time is urgent. In the light of that fact, God has saved us, he has purified us, he has called us, and we're to move with that urgency. So you and I are called to exemplify the hope. We're called to embody and exemplify the brotherly love That he wishes for the world, that he wants for the world, and the world is sorely missing, and we're and we're to do it all with a sense of urgency. Christ is coming back, and while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, I want to give you three takeaways. Here they are. Number one: find, find them. Find those who are lost and hurting and build a bridge of friendship to them. I guarantee you the most effective evangelistic tool that you will ever employ is building a bridge of friendship into the life of someone who does not know Jesus. Because when they see that you are an empathetic truth teller, that's the key. The key is that we just don't like walk up and whack somebody with a commandment tablet and say, here's the truth, whack, (laughs) you know, there you go, John 3, 16. That's not the key. The key is empathetic truth-telling. You know, uh, Daniel talked about this earlier, but this, this Jesus, who was tempted in every way, he knows exactly what it's like to be a human being because he was incarnate as a human being. All God, all human. He can empathize with you, and he can tell you the truth with empathy. And you and I can tell people the truth, but we need to find them, tell them. That's the second one. Tell them the good news of salvation in Christ alone. Can you say it? Can you tell people the good news? Because the good news implies bad news. And the bad news is that our sin has left us estranged from God the Father. It has left us judged and condemned to an eternity without our Father in heaven. And then we give them the good news, which is that Jesus died to forgive us of the sin that separates us from God, to reconcile men back to God, men and women. And that Jesus rose from the dead to defeat death. Otherwise, death would be permanent. And then three, bring them. Bring them into the fold. Find, tell, bring. Find them. Build a bridge of friendship with as many people as you can. Tell them the good news of salvation. Listen, people usually quote, what is it, Francis Assisi, you know, preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words or something like that. Nonsense. That's nonsense. Now, you don't want your life to be not commensurate with the gospel you profess. You don't want that. But nobody is going to get saved because you live out the gospel. People are going to get saved because you proclaim the gospel. How will they know unless someone preaches? And how will that person preach unless they are sent? You have to tell them. And once we tell them the good news, then we bring them into the family. We bring them into the fold very intentionally to disciple them and show them, now that you're a believer in Jesus, now that you've been saved by the cross, time to be shaped after the cross. Time to be shaped into the form of his dying son. So we bring the new disciples into community where there is real grieving hope. And I want to say that again. We we bring them into the community where there is real grieving hope. Because believers have it too. We grieve and we mourn for our society right now. We grieve and we mourn for the people who are far from God. Who are far from God. And they're going to spend eternity without God. We grieve for them. And we want reconciliation. But we call men to the reconciliation To reconciliation with God through Christ Jesus. Can I pray for you? Let me pray for you. Father in heaven we want to be. Finders, tellers and bringers. And my prayer God. You have called us. You have called us to embody the hope. To embody the hope. In these last days. Of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of that resurrection, and the hope of that resurrection. You have called us to exemplify the brotherly love that you want for all humanity, but it's present in the church. It should be. And God, we thank you for diversity within the church. But we also thank you, God, that those things which cause us to be diverse do not become points of division or dissension among us, but that you unify us around the cross of Jesus. And God, you have called us to an urgency, a sense of urgency, Will you just light that fire in our heart this morning? God, help us to find, tell, and bring. Will you help us do it? Because the time is short. The days are urgent. In Jesus' name, amen.